Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, and welcome to In Social Work. My name is Charles Sims, and I am your host for this episode. The U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, reported that in 2012, there were over 1.3 million arrests of persons under the age of 18. The overwhelming majority of these arrests were for relatively minor criminal acts. In most states, Individuals under the age of 16 or 17 who are arrested will have their cases heard in juvenile or family courts. These courts are designed to meet the unique needs of the adolescent and their families. However, in the states of New York and North Carolina, 16 and 17-year-olds who are arrested find their cases referred to adult criminal court regardless of the severity of the crime. There is growing concern that this policy does not serve the best interest of the young offender or the community at large. In New York State, the Raise the Age campaign is an effort to change the state's law and move cases involving 16 and 17-year-old offenders out of adult courts. Today's guest helps us understand why this is important and how it could work. Ron Jeanette Harrison is a licensed clinical social worker with more than 15 years of experience. She is a juvenile justice coordinator in the Erie County Family Court and an adjunct faculty member at the State University of New York, Buffalo State. An advocate for youth involved in the criminal justice and child welfare systems, Ms. Harrison also specializes in work with women and families impacted by childhood trauma. She received her Master's of Social Work degree from Stony Brook University, Stony Brook, New York. In today's podcast, Ms. Harrison identifies a differential response to young people in the child welfare system as opposed to the juvenile justice system. She explains what the Raise the Age campaign is and why it is important to stop managing 16 and 17-year-old offenders in adult courts. Ms. Harrison describes an alternative process being utilized in Erie County, a specialized court housed within adult court designed to meet the unique needs of these young arrestees. The reports thus far of increased youth and family engagement and reduction in recidivism are encouraging. The podcast ends with suggestions for social workers wanting to address this issue on the micro and macro levels. Ms. Harrison was interviewed in December of 2014 by Dr. Patricia Logan Green, an assistant professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Hello, my name is Patricia Logan Green. I'm an assistant professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Here with me today to talk about uh, new initiatives for juveniles involved with the justice system is Ms. Ron Jeanette Harrison. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. 
So I want to start with the story of your background and how you became interested in this population. Okay, well, the story really goes is that I always tell people social work kind of found me. I was raised by my grandmother who took me into what is now known as kinship care. So most of my teenage years, I've had some experience with human service workers or social workers coming in and out of the home. And I wasn't really sure what social work was or even that I was inclined to be a social worker. But I remember taking undergraduate courses and hearing about some of the vulnerable populations reminded me of, in some instances, of myself and individuals in my family, but definitely things that I was seeing in my community. And I had this passion to want to make change. So I actually evolved into going into social work in undergraduate. I went to graduate school at Stony Brook University. And when I returned back to Buffalo, my dream was to work in child welfare, which I did for quite some time. But then the opportunity came up for me to work with Erie County Family Court as a juvenile justice coordinator. And that really changed not only my pathway of the population that I would work with, referring to juvenile justice arena, but it would also educate me in a way of understanding how advocacy and social policies really impacted the work that we did as clinicians and social workers. During your time in this field, what sort of trends have you seen? I think the trends kind of come and go, right? But the one thing that I've seen throughout time is a lot of the disparities in how services are delivered and who is actually offered effective evidence-based services within a cultural and social kind of context. So. In child welfare, we know that a lot of young people will come through that arena, but they would be offered services from the start, whether it was mental health services, support services, additional services for their family members, and it was ongoing. And it seemed to be a different type of notion of caring for them because they were involved in the system because it was not of issues or efforts of their own, but for their parents or caretakers. However, when young people came through that pathway of juvenile justice, understanding that developmentally they don't really have the capacity to always make the best decisions. As my grandmother would say, they just sometimes do dumb stuff. They were treated much differently, even for low-level status offenses, where at times they weren't offered services at all. Many service providers became very irritated with the behaviors, although they had diagnoses of conduct disorder or depression or ADHD. So what we were seeing throughout the years is that there seemed to be compassionate delivery of services for one group of people, but not for another. And throughout my time, what we really try to do is educate workers, not only about their own biases, but by the biases that we kind of accumulate within group structures and kind of the burnout that social workers and other human services obtain throughout the year. So hopefully where I hope where we're going is that people are more educated that it doesn't really matter which pathway you come into these systems most often the story looks the same and that we look at people in these young people's circumstances as individuals and plan thereafter. New York State is relatively unique in how it treats 16 and 17 year olds who have committed crimes. Tell me about that. Well, New York State, along with North Carolina, are the only two states in our nation that still prosecutes young people the age of 16 and 17 year olds as adults. 
does not matter the level of offense or the nature of the crime. Anything from trespassing to felony offenses can deem a young person to be involved in the adult criminal justice system from start to finish. And how does that compare to other states? Well, other states have seem to be a little bit more progressive, although New York State is known to be a spearheader in many of these social justice and social policy initiatives. This raised the ages legislation that is not new to New York State, nor is it to North Carolina. In reality, we've been going back and forth probably the past 10 years of trying to push a more appropriate level of intervention and a policy level for the past 10 years so that the notion is that we want to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 16 to the age of 18. However, we've been unable to reach that level, although the past two years, we've had a lot of momentum of sharing awareness about this issue and having the governor and our other elected officials sign on to say that there at least needs to be a discussion and there needs to be a committee of experts and of young people who give solutions to this issue. So we are moving forward, but we still have some ways to go. How do the 16 and 17 year olds fare when they're transferred to adult courts and adult prisons? Not very well. To give an example, because I know not everyone is familiar in each state and sometimes counties do things differently. So an example would be, let's say, Sammy. Sammy is 15 and is currently involved in the juvenile justice system. And here in New York State, in Erie County, if Sammy got in trouble, he would be picked up. He would get an appearance ticket to go to probation with his family. They would be offered services, community service, different type of restorative justice activities to promote social good public safety, but also to find ways to deal with some of the issues that might be going on with little Sammy. And the hope is, is that little Sammy would get all these upfront initiatives and services to help from further penetrating into the criminal justice system. However, Sammy turns 16 the next day and he does another dumb little thing, right? And he no longer has that option just to have an appearance ticket for a low status or misdemeanor offense. He is going to be arrested. He's going to go to jail, which here is our holding center. And he is going to be arraigned in front of a court, an open court where he is going to be mixed in with all different types of adults with different types of offenses. He will be given a public defender. And the process, depending on the level of crime in that offense, will go there for. The problem with that is that most times young people are coming in are very fearful and I think there's a contradiction of how we label young people. In some segues we're saying you are a young person, you need to go to school, you're mandated to do certain things. However, there's a different piece where we're saying but you're an adult and you are solely responsible for your behaviors and it doesn't matter, you know, we're not looking at family context, we're not going to look at environmental issues or any other issue that might be going on, nor do we have to give you services. So the reality is that we set young people up from failure from the moment that they enter the adult system because we don't provide or we don't have to provide comprehensive assessments, we don't have to offer any services, and we don't have to look at any other measures of diversion besides jail or other very intrusive interventions. So what are some current initiatives that have helped to tackle these issues? 
Well, back in 2011, Judge Lippman, the chief judge here for New York State, he developed nine pilot programs throughout the state to really address the issue of young adults being placed in adult facilities. And Erie County, luckily, was one of those counties that were chosen, specifically Buffalo City Court, where Judge McLeod is the presiding judge. And what we were able to do is come up with this comprehensive way of managing cases, which is really managing young people through a specialized court. So there's a few things that would happen when young people come in. One, you're going to see the same judge from start to finish. Two, we are going to also mandate that some type of adult or caretaker be a part of that process, which normally would not have to happen. And three, the judge is going to refer this young person for a full evaluation. In evaluation, we're going to look at social, psychological, and environment issues. And what we found out is that many of the young people who were coming in had many impairments in their daily functioning. Many of them were homeless, which we love to say, we don't even say homeless, we say they were displaced, right? But the reality is that these young people did not have stable housing for six months to a year of the time that they actually committed the offense and was arrested. We have long-term complex issues of trauma, whether that was something that was directly, you know, sent towards them, whether it was witnessed of domestic violence or other offenses. And one of the major pieces is community violence that a lot of our young people are being a part of and witnessing in the community and really have become sensitized from the, the response of trauma. So those are some of the major issues that we were seeing. And in a report that we had given back to the judge to say, yes, Sammy has these low-level offenses, but there's a lot of other things that are going on. And if this young person was being seen at family court, they would be offered services like wraparound services or other interventions, not just to look at the offense, but to look at the underlying issues. And Judge McLeod allowed us to do that. So when young people were coming in and being assessed, we would be able to intervene and provide not only mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, but also link them to other services, getting them relinked to educational supports, and vocational and employment that really began to change the platform of what adult court or juvenile court would look like here. How successful has this initiative been? Well, we've been pretty successful. In 2014, there was a final count. So in August 4th of 2014, 6,224 adolescents were diverted from all of the nine pilot programs in New York State. And those are not duplicated cases. So what we're looking at is that the recidivism rate was somewhere about 25%. That is really extraordinary because we know that normally when young kids are placed into the adult system, that increases their chances of recidivism and actually increases their chances that they're going to move up a level to more severe and violent offenses. So what would happen to a youth involved in this program after the judge directs them for a referral? So once after the judge has given a referral, Judge McLeod has several different agencies that he can utilize. That's based upon the location of where the young people in his family live at or other expertise that one agency may offer as opposed to another. But the agency that I was working for, which is Heart Foundation, helping to empower at-risk teens, what that organization really looked to do is not to have a cookie cutter approach, 
but to look at each individual and to come up with an assessment and interventions that were solely based upon those individual needs. Therefore, when we look at the treatment plan, one person may come in for individual counseling and group counseling, and they could be there three or four days a week, as opposed to someone else who only needed to come in twice a week because they had stronger supports or some of the other behavior or emotional issues weren't really there. So this non-cookie cutter approach really dealt with a lot of upfront emphasis on the assessment. And again, we would mandate that an adult would be present with that young person. And this really had to do with a lot of building the relational piece, especially because we know that most of the individuals that we were working with were males who were either of African-American or Latino descent. So it was important that we establish these relationships up front with both them, the young person, and their parents and or caretakers. And this really changed the framework of how intervention happened. And I think a lot of this happened because the young people had a history of some type of family court involvement, whether that be through the juvenile justice system or the child welfare system. And parents oftentimes felt like they were the reason or they were always being blamed if their child were having behavior problems or were making poor choices. But what we tried to do was build these trusting relationships that they would come in consistently because the word mandated gets, you know, oh, you're mandated to come here. But the reality is that they had a choice to go to any services that they wanted to go to. So building a relationship, doing a comprehensive assessment, really finding out not only what we believe their needs were and some of the challenging pieces to deal with, some of the deficits, whether that be in the family or financially, whatever was the needs were, but to involve the family and the parents in such that they could describe and articulate what they felt like their needs were and starting that as a platform of growth. What we found, and I don't even know if there's some kind of formula to go with it, but when we had families that were really resistant to being there because A, they don't believe that their child really did the offense, or B, some of them are very low-key offenses, trespassing, being caught with marijuana, some of those things, the parents were very aggravated that they had to go through that process. But what we found is that once we developed the platform of intervention, is that the parents would begin to come in and request their own counseling sessions and that more information about these family secrets would come out. So issues of abuse, whether that was between adult and adult, and oftentimes we were seeing that there was domestic violence issues between siblings and their parents or that young person and their parent. And these are things that a lot of times adults are not going to talk about. Issues of incest, of physical or sexual abuse, issues with education deficits and developmental delays that really were not being discussed for many different reasons. But for whatever reason, I can't, this magical thing happened. And the young people began to come consistently outside of this mandate for the courts. And then we had parents who were at one point part of that intervention process with their child, but then they came in and wanted services on their own and began to reveal that they also have this history of traumatic experiences and some of the poor parenting things that they had incorporated into their family system. So now we had an opportunity that, that goes way beyond a criminal offense. We have an opportunity to not only heal and rebuild individuals and children, but to rebuild families. And I think the real notion was to then rebuild communities. So to me, all of these components really go together. 
And I think as social workers, we've kind of gotten away from the foundations of what our profession was based upon and really looking at the advocacy piece, being a voice for the people and understanding how speaking about social policy, even if you're not the person going to the Capitol and push these reforms, but having a dialogue about it and understanding how those reforms really impact or kind of fragment your ability to work with young people or whoever your population is. So I think those were some of the major factors that made our work a little bit different, looking at the framework from a relational ecological model and basing that as our introduction into the intervention of services. Tell me more about the relational ecological model. Well, the relational ecological model, initially, I don't think that we knew we were developing a model. We did not know. But we would have these weekly meetings to discuss cases. And we were discussing the framework of what we were doing that was working. Why were young people coming even after they had fulfilled the requirements for the court? Why were parents more involved in our programs and services as opposed to any historical involvement that they may have had? And we were part of this research. Erie County and New York State had researchers that came in to look at these pilot programs. And we conducted a survey sheet for our participants. And what we looked at and what we tried to kind of model were how did the clients relate to the social worker that they had? And there were certain, I guess, deliberate things that we put in place. One is that, which I thought was really progressive, is that the staff at heart not only lived in the community and worked in the community, many of them were from that community, and that in itself changes the platform of how you engage each other. So young people would see their counselors at the corner store, at the gas station. We knew up front about some of their behaviors out in the community. And we use that information and we use that relationship and we use that environment to kind of play and influence what was happening inside of the clinical sessions. So the whole entire model is really just based on establishing relationships with clinicians and clients who have very similar backgrounds, whether that's race and ethnic backgrounds, whether that's the location and language. So we're using all those pieces on this kind of cultural piece of connecting. And that has been kind of our key layout of how we build positive relationships. How do you see addressing the problem of criminal behavior amongst 16 and 17 year olds and, and treating them not as adults, but using this more compassionate model as benefiting the whole community? For several reasons, and I'll start where many of our elected officials and our community leaders are going to always look first. And the reality is we're talking about funding. And one of the proposed arguments is that it's going to cost communities tons of money that they don't have in their budgets to implement such programs. And I really have to disagree with that stance because we were able to implement Crossroads for little to no money. So let me explain what that means. The first year, which was back in 2009, in which Crossroads was kind of developed, even before Judge Littman made this announcement, we did this based upon collaborations. 
So an organization who was going to work with young people for mental health did the mental health component. Then we also understood there was an educational and employment issue, and there was another agency that would deal with that. So instead of one agency or the courts trying to take on absorbing the cost of dealing with this population, we really sat around and we had a collaborative approach, which is very much the same as what they do in family court. And our idea was that even with this legislation that we are proposing to raise the age of responsibility, that those cases didn't necessarily have to go to family court. So we're not going to put a strain on case management because that's what courts are known for, right? Courts are there to manage cases. So we don't want to put a strain on the courts in managing their cases because now they have these other loads of young people who are coming in that they would not normally have to see. But those cases would still stay in city court in the adult system, but they would fall still under a juvenile offender specialized courtroom, much of what we have going right now. And the number of young people coming through the case management piece would be relatively the same. We actually have seen a decrease in those, and we've seen a decrease in duplication of young people coming through the courts for some of the same type of crimes. But in addition, it didn't cost the courts any additional money. There was not a hiring of uh, staff that went into that. There wasn't a hire of additional judges that had to oversee those cases. Everything stayed the same, and the collaboration came from different organizations coming on and taking pieces that they specialized in to make the process go much easier. Each stakeholder pretty much making a promise that they would work on certain parts of that puzzle for the young person, and we would be reporting directly to the judge, whether that was weekly or twice a week or whatever his mandate would be. So this whole argument that is going to cause cities and counties tremendous amount of money to implement a specialized court, I think is really just untrue. And we've seen that here at Buffalo City Court where we were able to implement a program with no additional funding, no additional staff, but really moving towards this whole sense of collaboration and using stakeholders, which we're all talking about, but I think to actually effectively use the resources that we already have in our community, we've proven well. So the cost framework is just such an important aspect of a major argument that opposers have. But the second piece that is really important is the recidivism rates. So we've seen them drop over time, especially here where we are here in Erie County, to about 25%, which is really a significant drop in when we're talking about recidivism, especially when we're not talking about a duplication of cases. So looking at individual cases that come in and not a duplication of. And I think that this is really profound because something else happens in the whole notion of these interventions are really not about the criminal offense. So we're talking about them because that is most often the issue that has led the person into the courts, of course. They wouldn't be there for something else. But as I stated earlier, there's so many other underlying issues that are going on that once we break through that, we found that you're building a person's self-awareness and self-esteem and reconnecting them to communities. So an example would be, we used to work and did the Bailey Business Association, and we've done some work with other community um, activists, and we use those young people to go back into those same communities, either that they live in or that they offended in, which is normally the same community, 
And we have them do work to be a part of that process so they can be ingrained and feel connected to the community that they've taken so much from. That is a piece of restorative justice activity that we found to be profoundly effective in connecting young people to the community and allowing older people, people who are working and contributing to the community to know who the young people are. And that is one of the pieces that really helps to keep the rates down because young people then feel connected. So when they see different crimes going on, and we've seen this happen actually in one of our little community events, people begin to speak up and say, no, you can't do that over here. This is my neighborhood. We're not doing A, B, or C. And that's something totally different from a young person who comes in and they don't feel like they have any kind of measurement. And then the last points that I would want to put on is that we know that anytime a young person is put into an adult facility, there's other social and emotional costs that can't be recouped. So when we have young people who are sexually assaulted in adult prisons because they are increased by 50% of having a chance of being sexually assaulted in jail, 35% increase of being physically assaulted by an officer because the officer is there just to conduct and make sure that there's order. The one thing that we know about young people is that they don't sometimes do so well in those kind of arenas and that the officers are stating, we just see them as another inmate. My job is just to make sure things are flowing. So we have impulsive teenagers. We have teenagers that are sometimes making poor decisions. We have teenagers who are in adult facilities that have a history of trauma, and we're asking them to follow these adult guidelines. There are going to be some mishaps. So the reality is that keeping them out of those arenas and giving them community-based resources there's a gain not just for that young person to have a life without having this criminal record attached to them and giving them an opportunity to get reconnected to education and vocational opportunities, but for families and communities then to come together and be able to use them as a resource in that community and to be able to, you know, potentially help other young people not, you know, kind of make some of the same poor choices, but also a decrease in our system of having bodies in prison systems that are already overly crowded and using resources and dollars for young people that could be used at a lower rate in a community-based setting. That was great. What is the relationship of law enforcement? That is a great question. Law enforcement is very vital to this whole process. At this point, legislation is talking about raising the age of criminal responsibility. But I think what we're really trying to get to is not having young people enter the criminal justice system. And, and part of the work that we found is that there's a fear that is very tangible between young people and law enforcement. And we can't get away from that even with the ordeal in Ferguson to say that that's something that's unreal. So I think that training of law enforcement, both in the street who are working in communities but also within the legal system. So when young people are coming into the system, the clerks, all the other folks that they're intervening with, there has to be more of an understanding and a building of relationships. And I've been working with some of the council members. One council member in particular is the university council member, Rasheed Wyatt, and there's also the Madison District um, council member, Damone Smith, who are very engaged in the community and are opening the platforms for youth to have conversations with law enforcement, also teaching them about how you should intervene with law enforcement. 
sometimes there's just this invisible layer of confusion that comes because I don't know. And I've heard from young people, both who ran because someone else ran and some who ran because they really had done something wrong, but not knowing what the appropriate reaction should have been when they were intervened by law enforcement. But I think law enforcement also has a great responsibility here. And I think we've gotten away from that of having law enforcement be part of the community setting. So in the summertime, when I was in my office looking in between clients for private practice, I would see the cop cars driving up and down the street. And I imagine, wouldn't it be really nice if they were walking to be, where they could meet those young guys who are standing in the corner and have a conversation with them and find out, is this really a group of kids you know, hanging out and just talking to each other? Is this a sense of illegal activity that's going on in this corner? But there's no relationship between community and law enforcement. And I think that if we open that conversation to talk about who we are in your individualized communities, what are some of the barriers and the challenges, and how do we build trust so we can minimize or hopefully diminish much of the fear that is surrounding who the people are. Mostly we're talking about, from my stance, minority men, Black and Hispanic, who disproportionately enter the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system, the child welfare system. But their first contact oftentimes are gonna be law enforcement. So what can we do at those initial steps to still ensure public safety? They have a job to do and we support that. But there's another side to this as well. So I'm hoping that we can continue to have a platform to have that conversation, definitely implement training so that law enforcers have a better idea why young people may react the way they act, which I won't go into that, but the last piece to that I wanna just put on is that oftentimes our young people are labeled as oppositional conduct disorder. But many of the behaviors that we're seeing are symptoms of something totally different. So I think there has to be an educational piece there so they can understand when they're interacting with some of our young people, there's oftentimes something else that's going on. And if we can have a better engagement of that, maybe they won't be sent to the holding center, maybe they'll be sent to ECMC. Maybe there's some other intervention that is more appropriate at that time. What can social workers who are concerned about these issues do on either a micro or macro level? Well, I think social workers, all social workers can do on the micro level is just remember that our profession is built on speaking for the underclass, speaking for those individuals who don't have a voice. So advocacy is an important position that we must hold. And I think that we must educate ourselves about social policy and how they directly impact the clients that we serve. So as an educator, the one thing that I've been doing is using case studies and any opportunity that I have to talk about raise the age. So I really charge other educators to do such, you know, the same such things to bring it to light. Other things that they can do in direct practice is to find models that are culturally responsive to the individuals that they're working with and have a better understanding of not just what's on paper as far as the charges that are delivered to them, but I definitely would suggest that people go a step further and find the right assessment tools and the right intervention measures that will help to decrease the probability of recidivism. And on a micro level, what I think is really important is to just get engaged, whether that's writing to your elected officials writing to the governor, sending out emails that help other people understand what this legislation is all about. 
to educate yourself. One of the things that we've done here in the city of Buffalo is that we have community meetings and we ensure that there are times that this is this issue or issues alike that are very important to us in our community, that we're speaking to the young people about that, we're talking to our neighbors and black club members about it. So any opportunity to get the information out to others is very important, is a part of educating, but it's also a part of pushing legislation, letting our elected officials know what is important to us in our communities and ensuring that the next generation of social workers are empowered to move forward and keep the notion of what is advocacy alive. And then the last thing, as far as on the micro level, is to engage our court officials with training that describes what specialized courts are in meeting the needs of youth through developmentally and age-appropriate interventions. Are there websites or similar resources that people could look to for more information about the Raise the Age movement? Yes. One of the websites that you can go to is www.nycourts.gov. This will give you information about the pilot programs that are established here in New York State and will also give you some statistics about what is working and what seems to be effective with this population. And you can also go to raisetheage.com, get the facts. So be informed, get information, and you can, of course, join their email and newsletter to stay on top of any new events that happen. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Ranjanette. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Dr. Patricia Loga-Green speaking with Ms. Ranjanette Harrison about juvenile justice and New York's Raise the Age for Criminal Responsibility campaign. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.